All right. Genesis 10, 1 to 32. We'll do the whole chapter. This is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. How riveting. Just what you were coming for on a uh, Sunday afternoon. So, uh, so let's, yeah, giddy up. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elishar, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. <coughs> the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabtah, Ramah, Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalnah, in the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, Kalah, and Resen between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. <clears throat> Egypt fathered Ludim, Adamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Parthosim, Kalusim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admar, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelepheth, Hazar-Meveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Their territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country to the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And we are finished. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Uh, so it looks like everyone's still awake and, and following. So uh, well done and, and maybe breathing a sigh of relief thinking, oh, great. Now I never have to read that part of the Bible again. We can tick that off the list. And now I must confess, uh, when I was given this 
uh, passage to preach, I was really feel, feeling like the apprentice elder. It's like, you know, when you've got an apprentice chippy or something and you tell him to go to Bunnings to get the left-handed screwdriver and uh, he's obviously off on a wild goose chase. It felt maybe something a little like that when I'm told, this is the passage you get this week, <laughs> Stu. The genealogy of the sons of Noah. And I'm thinking, awesome. I, I, I remember just saying, man, okay, uh, how dreadfully, I'll, I'll just be perfectly honest, how dreadfully boring, very uninspiring, not very thought-provoking. And uh, just since we're all being honest, uh, perhaps we were thinking maybe the same thing today. And that's okay. It's, we're, we can have a dialogue about this. That's fine. Uh, you know, listening to me struggle to pronounce 70 ancient Hebrew names. I sympathize with all of that. <clears throat> but okay, I came to preach this. I believe it's the word of the Lord. So I've got to consider what that means. And, and as I came to preach, I realized uh, my attitude towards it and, and how I was feeling as I approached this, it, it exposed something of my motivation when I come to read the Bible and what I expect to get from the Bible. You know, when, when we come to passages like this and the Bible is full of genealogies and, and parts of scripture that we just scratch our head at and wonder uh, why we're reading it, you know, we come to these parts and we feel so alienated by them. It feels impossible for us to apply this to our own lives, our daily struggles, the grind, and, and see how we can uh, learn a moral lesson or, or see ourselves in this story somehow. And so normally we skip it because it doesn't appear to be about us or relevant to us. But it was a good reminder for me as I came to try and prepare that the Bible is actually not all about us. The Bible is not all about me. We are not the hero of every story and there's actually not always a moral lesson to be learned or some teaching for us to go away and apply in our week. My feelings towards this apparently a boring part of scripture exposed that I too often read the Bible thinking it's all about me. The Bible isn't just some handy guide to moral living while we're here on earth. Though of course the scripture is full of moral instruction and relevant teaching that is immensely practical in our day-to-day lives as we walk through uh, the struggles um, of of our lives here on earth. It absolutely is full of that. The the Bible does provide this kind of teaching, but it's not the main point. It's not the only purpose of the Bible existing. The Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And when it's less about us and more about Jesus, it gives us an opportunity to to come to these kind of passages of Scripture with, with perhaps fresh eyes. Every genealogy moves us forward in the story that points to Jesus and should fill us with anticipation for the promised seed of the woman who would come one day to defeat evil at its source. That's the promise given to us in Genesis 3 that after the fall, that one would come to one day crush the head of the serpent. And we know today that that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And every part of that of scripture is moving towards Jesus and reveals something about the nature of God, his redemptive plans and purposes, and something of the nature of humanity, those whom God made to bear his image and likeness and who he will redeem from their fallen state. And so with that in mind, today we're going to uh, attempt to um, 
draw what we can from this piece of scripture. We're going to see how it develops the narrative and the story of the Bible as it leads to Jesus. We're going to see how it develops a narrative map of the world for the ancient Israelites to whom it was written. It makes some theological claims that are sort of implicit in the text that I want to explore. And we'll um, unpack for sure some of the details of the sons of Noah uh, and and the interesting um, things that are found there. And finally, we'll just take a step back and consider what it means and what part this plays in that unified story that leads to Jesus. So let's get started. It's important as we begin to consider um, what this passage is doing, because it's far more than simply a family tree. Even for ancient Israel, this was ancient history. This was written um, to, the, to the people as they um, moved out of, um, ex- the, there was the exodus out of Egypt there. Moses is, is leading these people and he's writing uh, the first five books of the Bible. And this is for them, it's like an ancient map of their world, putting their place in amongst the people um, that surround them. This is, this is ancient history even to them. And so here we have a narrative and theological map of the world as it was known to ancient Israel. And this genealogy helps us to understand and explain some of Israel's relationships with the nations that surrounded them. And so first let's um, consider how this is building a narrative map. Because this deep genealogy is actually part of developing a really important plot line that started from the very first pages of the Bible. God gave humans a commission, a command when he created them and he placed them in the garden. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And so the burning question as we read through Genesis is, will they be fruitful and multiply? Will they obey God faithfully and, and, and follow this great commission to fill the earth with his glory as his image bearers? All through Genesis so far, we've been hoping that humanity would finally trust and obey God and fulfill this great commission as his image bearers, spreading his glory over the face of the earth. But uh, if you've been uh, coming over the last few weeks as uh, Cody has been unpacking and exploring Genesis, we know that it's been a disaster so far. Humanity has failed completely to trust and obey God to the point that they were wiped out in an act of God's righteous judgment in the flood. But one family was chosen, Noah. He's he's rescued from the flood and he's like God's great reset in many ways. And he and his family, they're delivered. And when they come out of the ark, they are given the same commission by God to be fruitful and multiply. And so the burning question now is, will they? And if you were here last week, you would know that we're off to a little bit of a shaky start. They're given this command and then not soon after Noah plants a vineyard, gets blind, drunk and something really sketchy happens in his tent with his son Ham and he is cursed. And so it's all hanging by a thread. It feels like it's all about to fall apart again. God's redemptive, the family he has chosen to, to fill the earth is, is cracking at the seams. The tension is incredible. And so we come to this genealogy here. Wondering with that in the back of our mind, will humans finally do it? Will they get it right? And, and we're encouraged, perhaps, as we read the Genesis 10. It seems like they're finally getting the job done. There are sons that are born. 
to the sons of Noah and they're going forth and they're spreading in their nations and languages and, and they're growing abroad across the face of the earth. And so maybe as you're reading this, you can breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, maybe, okay, we had some hiccups along the way, but uh, it's going good, maybe some good news. But unfortunately, it's not all as it seems. And so spoiler alert uh, for Genesis 11 next week, the Tower of Babel. It serves as a sort of prequel uh, to this genealogy because it tells us and explains why humanity began to spread across the face of the earth. And I won't um, spoil uh, Cody's sermon next week, but just, yeah, to give a bit of a spoiler alert, it wasn't because they were being faithful and obedient to God's command to spread, go forth and multiply. No, they instead gathered themselves together to build this great tower to praise their own name. And so God judged their proud arrogance, confused their speech, which resulted in them spreading across the face of the earth, divided in their language groups. And so for now, it's just important to say that God scattered the nations in his divine justice for their united rebellion. But in his wisdom, he is able to use even punishment for his greater purpose and glory, regardless of human disobedience, the earth will be filled with God's glory by his image bearers as he intended. So that's the narrative that's moving forward here, the plot tension as we uh, move through the story of Genesis. Now Genesis 10 is also making, I think, a very bold theological claim about the people of the world, the people that make up uh, this place, and that is this. All the people of the world, of all the nations, even, if they are, even as they are spread out and have divided themselves according to families, clans, languages, all sorts, we all come from one family. We are all one human race. Whatever our differences may be, we are all made in the image and likeness of God to declare his glory across the earth. And while um, sometimes these sorts of passages will be used to try and articulate the differences and really put our finger on, you know, who's who and what race where and, and whatever else. However interesting that might be, you know, as we try to identify the different people groups and things like that, that that's okay, that's fine. But, but really, we can never really say with, with exact precision where all the people groups come from and where and why. And that's because even after... Um, the, the spreading and scattering in Genesis 10 that's described, people didn't just stay in their allotted uh, languages and nations and, and places. People have migrated and mingled and married and moved again. The world really is a melting pot of migration. We stand here. This is not our sort of ancestral homeland necessarily. We, we find ourselves in Australia because we've moved and migrated and married with all sorts of different uh, people that come from all different places around the world. So however fascinating it might be to try and study the migration patterns and the sons that you know, might have come and the, all the human history behind that. It is valuable, but trying to figure out the origins of all our differences from a passage like this, I think actually obscures the important theological claim being made here, which is that no matter the color of the skin or, or our race or the language we speak, we all have a common ancestor. We are all one. And the apostle Paul as he um, carries Christ's mission to go forth to all the nations, he certainly understood the theological implications of this genealogy. 
when he went out and he addressed the Greeks, the men of Athens. These were a proud group of people. The Athenians and Greeks, they saw themselves as elevated intellectually, superior race to the other barbarians and peoples of the world. More intelligent, um, you know, men of learning. And this is what Paul said to them in Acts 17. This is a part of a sermon he delivered. He says to them, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He, he makes the point emphatically clear that from one man, every nation of mankind lives across the face of the earth, that they should seek God. And so the point being made here, we have a rich theology that means that the follower of Christ can never believe one race is superior to another or to treat another race with contempt or to look down upon them. It's simply nonsensical and illogical for the Christian to hold such views because we are all indeed made in God's image to bring him glory across the face of the earth. Racism is anti-Christ. And the multi-ethnic nature of the Christian community from its very beginning has been one of its defining features that has caused Christians to stand out among other cultures that would love to divide and vilify and claim superiority. When um, the disciples uh, were waiting for the Spirit to come uh, in the moment of Pentecost in, in Acts, go and read that story in your own time. But when the Spirit finally descended upon them and they spoke in many languages, it's like a multi-ethnic triumph of God's glory with people from Jerusalem, Samaria and the ends of the earth giving praise to God, each in their own language. The seeds of these ideas of the many nations being one are planted right here in this genealogy. It's truly a theological triumph that we should not take for granted. It's a beautiful, beautiful theology. And so that's some of the big picture. That's the narrative uh, that's moving forward, that the tension of will they or won't they fill the earth and subdue it. We see that uh, despite their disobedience, God has scattered them. We've uh, understood one of the theological points being made in this genealogy that from the many one, uh, from, fr one fr from the many come one, we are from one, the many. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. And so now that we've taken, uh, had a big picture look, let's um, go into uh, describing some of the sons. I'm not going to sort of do this line by line or verse by verse like we might normally uh, do uh, at Gospel Church. I'm not going to um, put us all through that. So I'm just going to sort of um, paragraph by paragraph sort of describe some of the sons and uh, some interesting things about them, what we can learn. So first we have the sons of Japheth. Um, the branch of Noah receives really the least attention in this genealogy. There's no real stories or descriptions about them other than the fact that they are called uh, the coastland peoples. Uh, and commentators pointed out that um, here coastland doesn't necessarily mean that they, they live uh, in houses by the beach. Um, to the Jewish reader, um, the coastland peoples to them means people that are separated from them by waters, by oceans. So these are people that went out by boat to sail across the seas and settled in different 
lands. And so this really, by virtue of their geographical distance from Israel, explains why there's so little um, about them here in this genealogy. And, and just for the uh, geography or anthropological um, nerds among us, I being uh, one of them, uh, while there's conjecture and debate about all these sorts of things, and as I said, you can never really uh, pinpoint, uh, put your finger exactly on it because we've all migrated and moved and mingled. But generally speaking, um, church uh, historians believe that uh, the sons of Japheth were the ones that went sort of northwest into Greece and Europe and even across the Americas. That, that sort of, you can trace the different uh, names to different places and languages found among those people. So a little bit of uh, geographical um, fun facts for you if you're ever at a Bible trivia night. So that's the sons of Japheth. Uh, then we get to the sons of Ham and they get plenty of attention in this, in this genealogy, but it's not exactly uh, positive attention because from the sons of Ham come many founders of several powerful and wicked empires that would uh, feature prominently as Israel's enemies and even become real icons for evil and depravity as the biblical story moves forward. And these descriptions are, again, they're making a theological and narrative, uh, painting a theological and narrative picture of the map of Israel at this time. It, it explains to the ancient Israelites the antagonism and, and the enmity that they have with these people. Um, again, for the uh, geography uh, nerds among us, uh, despite the debate, and of course, you know, without being able to put your finger specifically on it, it's believed that the sons of Ham were those that went south and settled uh, on the African continent and became uh, those peoples. And just to speak uh, briefly about some of the notable sons that are mentioned here. Uh, first, we have um, Cush, he fathered Nimrod. And Nimrod gets the most attentions of any of the sons in this genealogy. And his name literally means rebel. So we already uh, should be wary of what he is about to go on to do. He is described as being a mighty man and a mighty hunter. And if you've um, been at Gospel Church through the um, Genesis series, mighty man or mighty hunter should be ringing bells of, of the Nephilim of old. These demonic, power-hungry, mighty men that set up evil empires to their own glory. To be called a mighty man is not a compliment that's being given here. It is describing a man of violence and brutality, one who desired to rule over his fellow man by oppression and by force. And what's more, Nimrod is described as being a mighty hunter before the Lord. And this could mean two things. It might even mean both of these things, but at least means one. First, that Nimrod was a man before the Lord, meaning that he sought to elevate himself above other men. It's almost like sort of royal propaganda. He claimed to have godlike status, to belong in the very throne room of God and the gods, have some kind of privileged position that other men didn't have. And this would set a precedent that would be repeated throughout history with rulers and kings, empire, emperors, claiming some special divine right to rule over their fellow men as if they were privileged by the gods or had some right to rule. And so it could also mean, uh, before the Lord, being a mighty hunter before the Lord, that Nimrod committed his acts of violence and rebellion so flagrantly, so openly, that he didn't care who saw. 
What man could challenge him? Even before the Lord, he does what he does and he is not afraid. He does not fear the Lord. He doesn't even believe that God would stop him. And whichever one that is, the point is that he is rebellious, he's wicked and a violent man, and he would go on to establish the first human kingdom. He is not described as having one city or place to call his home, but many, beginning with the infamous Babel, which would become the empire of Babylon and the Tower of Babel. This is Babylon that would ultimately destroy and exile Judah. Nimrod's kingdom would also include the notorious Assyria, another empire for the destruction and exile of Israel's uh, northern uh, nation, a truly terrible legacy he leads. And just finally on Nimrod, it says here that there was a saying made after him, just like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. It's interesting that there was a saying that, that continued on because what it tells us is many more men would come after Nimrod, just like him. There would be many more uh, men who would seek to elevate themselves above their other men with violence, oppression, tyranny, so much so that you'd be able to point to them and say, oh, just like Nimrod, here is another ruler, another mighty man. It reminds us that history truly does repeat itself and this insatiable pride and arrogance that man has is not limited to this man alone. It's telling that when King Jesus, the true king, the true Lord of all creation, when he comes to earth, he comes not as a mighty man or a violent and oppressive warrior, but as a suffering servant. Christ alone is truly Lord over all, yet he gives of himself suffering and dying. He sets the precedent and the example of how God's people are called to rule in the way of love so that rather than that people would look at us and say, ah, just like Christ, giving, loving, serving, the way of love. And so just some other sons of Ham that get uh, interesting mention, Egypt, uh, would become an enemy of Israel, the oppressive slave driver refusing to let God's people go. The Philistines are mentioned here as a descendant of Egypt and there would be many future battles that Israel would fight against the Philistines. We get the story of David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. And Canaan is the ancestor of the peoples whose land God would take to give to the people of Israel, the promised land. And so it makes sense that his descendants uh, get quite a bit of time here in this genealogy because these were the people that Israel were relating to and had history with and conflict with. They needed to understand their place and their relationship with them. Some notable names related to Canaan that you might recognize are Sodom and Gomorrah, cities and people filled with sexual immorality and ultimately destroyed by God, just as the people of Canaan would be punished for their depravity. And so, um, these uh, descriptions of the sons of Ham, they're really quite infamous and they're not flattering at all. They really live up to the legacy that their father Ham left them with the depraved act he committed with his father in the tent. And it would be um, easy or convenient for us to read that and think, oh, that race must be especially broken. They're especially bad. But we must remember that despite the wickedness that's described here of this particular group of people, that really every nation... And every people group of the earth would build their own empires and act in oppression and pride and arrogance towards the Lord. 
Even God's own people, Israel, would become just like the nations that surround them and end up oppressing and not following the way of the Lord. And so we should not see here that Ham is some especially uh, sinful people. All have sinned and all in their pride rebel against God. And in his mercy, he delivers he, and desires that people from every nation would love and serve him, including the people of Ham. And so finally, we get uh, the sons of Shem, the ancestor of the people of Israel. Uh, and again, there's um, debate, but church tradition um, believes that the sons of Shem were the ones that went east and settled uh, in the Asia, uh, Asian region and, and the Pacific and so forth. And there are two things that are said about Shem. First, that he's the father of all the children of Eber and that he's the elder brother of Japheth. And, and so the reason that these two things are mentioned, it's interesting. I mean, Eber is um, the great, great grandchild of, of Shem. So he gets a special mention. Why? Uh, because Eber, it's actually um, where we get the root. Eber is the root word for Hebrew. And it's from Eber's line that we would eventually um, have Abraham and then the people of Israel. And so Israel, in, in writing this genealogy this way, are, are connecting themselves especially to the people of Shem. This, this is important for them to understand their place in the world. And he is referred to as the brother of uh, Japheth. In particular, commentators seem to uh, believe that the reason for this was to emphasize the special bond uh, that they had between one another when they uh, covered their father's shame in the tent and did not participate in the shamefulness of their brother Ham. They shared in the blessings of Noah. Now, Eber had uh, two sons. Uh, it says that the uh, name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Um, and, and Peleg, uh, here, we, we actually um, are told that in his days uh, the earth was divided, that's why he was named, and, and so it's believed that this is because he was born at the time of the great um, scattering of the people from, from Babylon, truly a, 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 an enormous uh, event in, in world history, and so he's remembered for that. But then he's left, and we don't hear of his descendants until Genesis 11. That's because from Peleg is where we um, get the line that leads to Abraham. But we do get quite a description of, of Joktan and his descendants here. And so uh, the, 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 the question here is why? And I, and I wonder if, if it's like the author's saying, uh, don't worry, we'll get to the, us Israelites in a moment, but, but first, let's just focus on the rest of the world because they're important too. God is about to zoom right in on the people of Israel. The story of the Bible is about to focus on them intently and the Lord's special relationship with them. But that we get so much detail about these people, I think, is just making the point that God cares about all the nations. He would name them and he knows them, even if he would choose Israel. Okay, so we've had a little bit of a history lesson, a bit of a geography lesson. Uh, so just take a moment now to shake yourselves uh, awake from some of the, uh, from the anthropological nerdiness of all of that. That's, that's okay, we, we, got, we got through. Uh, so just to bring us um, to this point so far and consider how this leads to Jesus. We see how this genealogy de develops the narrative, the plot um, of will they or won't they fill the earth obediently, the answer is that humans do eventually, but not from obedience, but because of judgment and their rebellion, God scattered them. We've discussed the theology of race and observing that racism is anti-Christ, that from one man comes every nation across the face of the earth. 
And we've also discussed the sons of Noah and some of the um, significant descendants there. So how does all of this connect us to the story of Jesus? From the beginning of time, as God created the heavens and the earth and, and placed mankind in the garden, he determined to fill the earth with his image bearers, humanity, that he would receive glory and praise and that humanity would faithfully and obediently rule and subdue the earth in his name, that all would receive the blessing of God and all would flourish. But we know humanity rebels against God at the fall. But even then, God promised that from the offspring of the woman will come one who shall crush the serpent's head and evil and rebellion forever. And so we're holding out hope, wondering, will this be the one? Who, who will lead us? Who will crush evil finally? And if, and if you're reading this story for the first time and don't know anything about Jesus, you're reading these characters wondering, will they or won't they? Will this be the one that we've been waiting for? Noah was chosen out of the sinful and rebellious generation. So there's some hope. Maybe this will be the one that will finally defeat evil for us and unleash this blessing of the Lord. But no, more sin. Maybe his sons. No, still more rebellion as he... Humanity ignores the command to fill the earth and instead gathers together under the rebellious and violent uh, rule of Babel to begin uh, to build a culture and glory to their own name. The cycle of sin and rebellion and evil continues. But then again, there's hope. This genealogy tells us that from all the peoples and nations that were scattered in their rebellion, we have this hint that one would be chosen. Abraham, he was chosen to be a blessing to the nations in Genesis 12. And God is determined, despite human sin, to bless the whole earth and fill it with people who give him glory and praise. And it was always God's design that the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, would be a light of God's glory to the nations. They were chosen not to keep God to themselves as if it was their um, special uh, relationship that no one else could know about. They were chosen so that they could bear witness to him. This is why Israel is described in Exodus 19 as being a kingdom of priests. That is, they were to represent God, to be like a mediator between God and the nations, that all the nations of the world would come and worship Yahweh. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses implores the people of Israel to obey God in the sight of all other nations so that the other nations would say, surely this is a great nation, a wise and understanding people, because they would connect that there's something different about them here. This, this idea of all the nations is, is all throughout the Old Testament. A few Psalms uh, speak of it. It says uh, in Psalm 86, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And again, uh, in Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his father's, it is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. God's desire that every nation would worship God is why the prophet Micah could prophesy like this. He says, that it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and all people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and they will say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, 
that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God chose the people of Israel because he was determined to bless the whole world through his chosen people. But they themselves rebel and they fail to be a light to the nations. Rather, they become corrupt and they become just like the nations around them. They view themselves, in fact, as being superior because, and special because God had chosen them. They separate themselves, Jews and Gentiles, us here, Jewish, the chosen people, special of God, Gentiles, impure, unclean, terrible. Let's not associate ourselves with them. And this grieves the heart of God. This is why when, when Jesus came into the temple, he drove out the money changers and the money lenders who had filled the part of the temple that was supposed to be for the Gentiles to come and to worship him. Israel had, had separated the Gentiles. So they did not want them there. They did not want them to participate in the blessing. And this grieved the heart of God. And so what is to be done if his chosen people have failed? How will God bless the nations and fill the earth with his glory? We know the answer is in Jesus Christ in his life, death and resurrection. Jesus came to save and redeem Israel that they would finally go out to the nations. This is why his great commission to his disciples at the end of Matthew is so significant. It's such a game changer in the, in the mentality of the people of Israel. He says to them, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus is saying the invitation is for everyone. The world is, is called to participate in this blessing. It's not just for Israel, just as God had always intended. They were never chosen by God. Uh, they had always been chosen by God to be a blessing, a light to the nations, but had fallen terribly short. And Paul uh, explains this, really calling out his fellow Israelites in Acts 13 as they begin to fulfill this great commission to go. He says, condemning his fellow Israelites, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you. Jesus came and preached to the Israelites. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice and glorifying the word of the Lord as as many were appointed to eternal life believed. Can you imagine being a Gentile who for so long had heard of this great and powerful God and heard of the wonderful things he had done and wanted to know more, wanted to learn of who he was, wanted to be a part of this nation, but was for so long prohibited from that. Not allowed in the temple or, or made so difficult uh, to, to enjoy that blessing. Finally, in Jesus it can go out. Paul summarizes this mission of the, of the early church of followers of Jesus in his letter to the Galatians. He says this in Galatians 3. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, so that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit 
through faith. What he's saying here is that this, this desire to go out and go forth is not some new crazy ideas made up by the followers of Jesus. They're tapping into the ancient promises of God, the promises to Abraham that would find their, their, their roots right here in, in a genealogy like this, that God cares about all the nations of the earth. That's the good news that makes a, a passage like Genesis 10 apparently boring and irrelevant really come to life with a new rich sense of meaning that God cares for all the nations. Finally, there's um, one more um, theological claim that I believe is being made in Genesis 10. And it seeks to answer, or really answers the question that some people might be inclined to ask. Why why did God choose just Israel? Isn't it unfair that God chose Israel. What about all those other nations? What, what were they doing in this time when God was especially uh, working and, and doing things for the people of Israel? And what we learn and see here in Genesis 10, or what we should at least remember, is that every nation, every tribe and language across the earth came from Noah and from his sons. These were people who experienced firsthand the awesome and terrible judgment and mercy of God to save them from the mighty flood. All nations then are without excuse because all nations have deep in their history the grace of God made known to them. All nations across the earth were delivered by the flood because they all come back from the people of Noah, the family of Noah. But rather than these sons spreading across the earth and making the name of God known and enjoying him and blessing the nations, they they rebelled and turned away, twisting the goodness of God and distorting it until it was something different and forgotten. But the claim that is being made here really is that all nations are without excuse. And it's interesting to consider that um, anthropologists and um, researchers of of ancient religions um, say that Almost all traditional religions and people groups have an ancient a flood account in their in their most ancient stories, in their religions, in their histories. It, it, that tells us that it's like there's this faint memory that God had delivered these people from the mighty waters, but it has all been forgotten and twisted as human pride and sin take over. But God will deliver them again because He has sent the person of Jesus Christ, God himself incarnate. He came and he will come again, fulfilling this great redemptive plan to fill the earth with the blessing and glory of God. God may have scattered the nations as divine justice for their united rebellion, but in his wisdom, he is able to use even the punishment for his greater glory, as he is glorified all the more as the multitude of peoples finally come together to worship him, the whole earth filled with his blessing and glory. This is the good news. This is the kingdom of God. This is the story we are invited to be a part of. If we would believe in Jesus, repent and, and follow him. If we would trust in his way and become a part of this nation of priests, a light to the world. And so that's all I have to say on Genesis um, 10, the genealogy of the sons of Noah. I will pray as I close. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you 
uh, did not forget us, the nations of the world. You redeemed in the flood and despite our rebellion, you were determined uh, to deliver us. And I just glorify and praise you for that. You chose your people of Israel and that you sent your son ultimately to suffer and die, that, that your blessing might be known to all peoples across the face of the earth. And we hold on to this hope that that will be fulfilled in the new creation in your kingdom. I pray we would live as people here on earth as is in heaven, um, ruling and reigning in love and service and mercy towards one another. Truly a people are distinct. In Jesus' name, amen.